Blank, you're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I have with me in studio today David Donaldson, who's the CEO and Clinical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. And we're going to talk today about a subject that I think is somewhat interesting and actually maybe hopefully thought-provoking for a number of our listeners. And that is the disease of addiction and codependency and co-occurring disorders or mood disorders, as we might say. One of the things that we've realized at the Atlanta Healing Center is when people have the disease of addiction, it does affect their family members, and it's quite interesting as their family members may enter the program at the Atlanta Wellness Center, which is a companion program to help folks with codependency or other kinds of stress-related disorders, what we see is there's many similarities in the symptoms that the person has, like trouble sleeping or with their mood or with their attention. Uh, Hormonally, we see very similar patterns, and we often see similar changes in their brain when we look at their brain mapping. It has uh, become more and more clear to me that these um, diseases create in everyone around them um, not only emotional changes, but mood changes and physiological changes. So we're going to spend a little time today talking about what we mean by that and hopefully helping people to understand the importance, not just of the person with the disease of addiction getting some help and treatment, but also their loved ones, because this can be a very profound and often disabling problem if left untreated, and I'm speaking of codependency. So thank you, David, for being here. I am glad to be here. I, I found this particular um, subject to be um fascinating throughout my work in in the addiction field, but now that um, we're beginning to be able to look at it and beginning to connect some science to the the disease of codependency, um, it's becoming, it's it's waking up a whole new excitement in looking at this. Um, There's always been that work of helping patients to understand their family members and helping family members to understand their patients and helping them survive living with each other for the first you know, few months of the recovery process um, um, because so often the, the message is you're going to end up in divorce. You've got to learn how to live your life. You might as well just go live your life and um, this is a sick family that's never going to get healthy. And, and there's a lot of divorce in the recovery process. Um, um, but I don't, I don't think that when, when people are given enough information and support and direction that that has to be the case. And, and I think that we're now finding with the work that you're doing and, and looking at brain maps and looking at the biology that, that there is solutions for the families that we just didn't know about before. I I agree, and I think that is really one of the reasons that as we were moving forward with our treatment center and treatment program that we felt it was imperative that we have a companion program for the family members and that the family members and the loved ones are included in the treatment plan, that we stress that they need to be coming to our family program and they need to be learning about self-care because we do see these very parallel uh, difficulties. Uh, 
Now, when we talk about the disease of addiction, we know of that as a genetically inherited disorder that also involves exposure to drugs, alcohol, or behaviors, and a stress or a real-life environmental situation that propels the person to begin to use in a much more regular basis, and then the disease of addiction manifests itself in that person's life as they experience the loss of their control over use and the movement from I'm using because this feels good and because this is giving me a reward to I'm using to avoid negative consequences. I don't want to feel withdrawal. Uh, cravings are terrible. I am not getting high. I'm just trying to feel normal. And at the end stages of the disease of addiction, we see the person using, um, again, just to avoid being sick. The, the, the high, the pleasure, that is gone from the picture, and there are many changes that occur in the brain as that process continues. One of the things we don't know about is, is the disease of codependency also genetically inherited, or is this more of a learned behavior in response to someone who has the disease of addiction or any other chronic uh, medical or mental illness that requires the children or the family members to take over and do more things than they normally would do in that relationship. What are your thoughts about that? Um, well, I think that we've we've always kind of talked about it as this um, – adaptive pattern or I guess maladaptive pattern of, of behaviors that people are doing in order to survive the progressively um, worsening situation that people are having to become more vigilant about um, making sure bills are paid and making sure the gas stove is turned off and making sure doors are locked and, and making sure each other is safe as the person who has addictions life is getting increasingly out of control the, the rest of the members in that family are having to adapt in order to keep um, the situation afloat. And we always talk about how families stay in balance even if one person is getting way out of balance. The other people adapt to make that. So um, it's been pretty common to talk about them in this mutual relationship of having to do these things. Um, what has been interesting lately is is beginning to see it does have an impact on hormones, and it does have an impact that we're seeing in the brain with the family members that that are partic- participating in those other um, those services. So. We don't know yet. We don't have enough information to know whether this is um, a learned adaption to trying to keep homeostasis within the family or within the relationship, within the community, or whether there may be some genetic input to it, a vulnerability to having this kind of stress response. But we are very clearly seeing that codependency can be one of the co-occurring disorders that we can have with the disease of addiction. So when we 
talk about moving this from someone with addiction and someone with codependency and their, the dance that they do to try and keep their lives as balanced as they can. When we add in co-occurring disorders, sometimes one of the definitions I think we can use is the co-occurring disorder of addiction in a person who also, that same person, has codependency. They may have grown up in a household where drugs or alcohol were part of their experience, and they're adapting to that kind of unstable and sometimes chaotic lifestyle creates in them this difficulty with relationships and intimacy and other kinds of problems. Um, sometimes they, the person with addiction has been in a relationship with someone else who has addiction. And if one or both of them are active at some point in their life in terms of their disease, that codependency can also be created there as they're, again, trying to keep balance in a very unstable situation. So I think that's when we're trying to define what co-occurring disorders, that is one that we need to think about. And sometimes we do have our patients as they go along through their recovery from addiction begin to add in codependency treatment as well so that they can learn about some of their difficulties with relationships and intimacy. Oh, absolutely. I think actually a, a lot of the work that, that we're doing is codependency work. Um, once once we're beyond just not drinking or using on that day, um, um, we don't necessarily put it out there as today we're addressing codependency <laughs> or we're not saying that you need to start adding another, another type of support group into your life right now. Um, but we're beginning that process of just recognizing that this is a lot more than just um, – loss of control over the chemical it's it's been a means of coping with with these internal discomforts and it's been a means of relating to the world that that um um has has impacted impacted your entire life and and codependency is going to be the next part of what your progress and and the recovery work is going to most likely look like so that may be one of our definition of a co-occurring disorder for someone with the disease of addiction. We have other ways of defining a co-occurring disorder or double trouble or the old language. We, we have to keep changing the language so new books can be written and new publishers can be made rich. But um, the, um, the old term was dual diagnosis. Now we talk about co-occurring disorders. So having a primary diagnosis of addiction or a primary diagnosis of codependency and having other disorders along with it. Um, real often what we'll, we'll see in, um, in people are what look like stress-related disorders. You know, um, um, looks like PTSD symptoms, looks like um, um, early trauma symptoms. Um, a lot of times we see people that are, are showing characteristics of major depression um, they're they're having uh, appetite issues. They're having sleep issues. They're having focus issues, and you know they've got some time away from the the substance. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the alcohol or the drugs. Um, part of the benefit that we're seeing in having people be with us on an outpatient basis longer is we are seeing this isn't necessarily the chemicals, but the 
life issues that are going on. Um, and yet again, throwing antidepressants at the situation hasn't been the, the solution either. So it's been looking at other options for those people. So we see these co-occurring disorders that you've mentioned, anxiety disorders. So they may have a genetically inherited anxiety disorder. They may have a situational stress disorder where the stress of their environment or being in recovery or having a patient, a family member in recovery has created these stress symptoms um, and mood disorders, depression, bipolar disorder. These are probably the more common and, and more frequently referred to co-occurring disorders, our mood disorders, like depression, like anxiety. There are other ways, though, that we can think about co-occurring disorders, other ways to define it, and one is a personality disorder. And this, again, goes back to your worldview and how you might be raised and whether you see the world as a safe and happy place or whether you see the world as a scary place, that you have to defend yourself and be constantly suspicious of others. That kind of worldview uh, often impacts and creates some challenges when you're trying to work with someone who has the disease of addiction. Um, In particular, a lot of times the worldview will create... Um, I sometimes refer to them as porcupine people, prickly <laughs> people that, that, you know, a lot of addiction treatment, you want to get in there and, and, and make a safe and warm and inviting place. And that is really uncomfortable for, for some of these individuals. And creates a lot of the difficulties that they have in intimate relationships and getting along with people in their community and with people at work. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about additional diagnosis or definitions of co-occurring disorders and begin to look at the neurobiology of these. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties. Track and record your garden with photos and notes. Share on Facebook and Twitter and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. 
Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. I have David Donaldson with me today, and we're talking about addiction and codependency and mood disorders or other co-occurring disorders. We were defining co-occurring disorders before the break, and David, you made a really good point that we need to be clear that we're not just talking about co-occurring disorders in the person who has the disease of addiction, although that is the certainly the most common and frequent way that we hear that term, talking about the disease of addiction and another disorder. We want to expand that diagnosis not just in terms of not limiting it to a psychiatric or mood disorder, but we want to expand that to also say that people with co-occurring codependency, um, excuse me, people who have co-occurring codependency can have co-occurring. I got my... All these co's wrapped all up the together. Co's are it. Too many co's. <laughs> um, that codependency, people who suffer and struggle with this um, a disorder, also can have a genetically inherited mood disorder. They can have depression. They can have an anxiety disorder. They can have a stress-related disorder that can be separate and apart from and or triggered and made worse by their interaction with their loved one who has the disease of addiction and their stirring up and getting it back into a place of being active in their codependency. Yeah. Yeah, and then finally, the other one that we deal with is is real often dealing that with people who have a processing disorder, where they're they're perceiving information slightly differently than the way you might think that you're communicating with them. Um, and and uh, real often in early recovery, when the brain is still healing, their their perceptions are um, clouded by shame and clouded by by feelings that are overwhelming them, but sometimes their perceptions have always been just a little bit different. Right. They're wired differently. And that's a really interesting thing when we do the brain health report, which is a neurocognitive test that we do on our patients. One of the areas we often see dysfunction in, both in the person with addiction and the person with codependency, is they don't recognize nonverbal cues. They cannot read someone's emotional state by looking at their face. 
it's it's amazing to me, but it's very, very common. And we see that then confirmed by the QEEG. Those parts of their brain are not working correctly to interpret that. There's been and so much of what's been coming out related to the, the brain health report and the QEEG that's been surprising because you think that addicts are really, really good at reading other people's faces. Um, because that's been a survival mechanism that they'll go into situations and they'll be able to zero in on who it's safe to talk about related to um, feeding their addiction or mm-hmm. or protecting their addiction. You know, so you think just on the surface that they're really good at this, and and what you come to find out, and and first looking at the report and processing with them is that that they really aren't. They've been um, faking it. Um, um, and they, they've been guessing at it and, and just, you know, I guess guessing enough times until they get the right person um, more so than actually being being really good at, at reading people's emotional states. So they're responding in a way that would be appropriate if indeed that was the emotional state the other person was communicating. But I'm always surprised at the paper the people that say those faces because this part of the test shows a series of faces and they'll say those faces all look exactly the same and yet clearly at least when I look at them Mm -hmm. clearly there is someone who looks angry and someone who looks afraid and someone who looks disgusted and someone who looks happy and someone who looks calm for someone to come back and say all those look the same really begins to communicate very well <laughs> the difficulty they have in dealing with the loved ones in their life. They are not reading it correctly at all, and their response is often then inappropriate to what, what the situation is. Well, and part of what we're noticing is that their response times are really, really quick. You know, they're responding to all of these faces in a really, really quick time, but they're so often wrong. You know, and so you think about the early, the households in, in early recovery and these people walking in and the, the feeling that family members are always talking about how life feels like they're walking on eggshells. And they always don't know what's going to come in at the end of the day or if it's going to be safe to say, how was your group today? Um, and is that going to be a conversation or is it going to be a why are you always on my back reaction? Um, and, and this kind of helps us to understand that. Their their perceptions, at least in this early recovery process time, um, are, are quick and, and often wrong. And often wrong. And that leads to these um, high emotional states that leave the family members feeling very confused. Conversely, though, we see in the, the family members themselves also having difficulty reading the nonverbal cues and responding out of um, what they, they think is correct, but misinterpreting the situation and the communication. And this creates that eggshell walking scenario over and over and over again. Yeah, they um, they really will find themselves jumping into really telling you all about the the situation that the family members have created, or, or they're in that focused on the on the patient um, place, um, and and they 
they get to a point of being incredibly comfortable in that place where they can just talk on and on and on and on about what that other person is doing. Um, but as soon as you want to bring them back to say, okay, that's great, but I really need to know how you're doing or what's going on with you or how are you taking care of yourself, can't do it. They won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> they have a very strong reaction. I'm fine. I'm fine. Why, why would you even ask that? Um, they really don't want to go there. And, again, that's part of codependency, which is all my focus, all my attention, all my energy, all my concern, all my resources are going to save the life of my loved one who has the disease of addiction. And how I'm feeling, what I'm doing is not relevant to this conversation. And that's something that we've seen on a processing level for, you know, as long as we've been doing this work. You know, we've family members have always stayed focused on the patients, and it's been a kind of a dance to get them back into their own place. Um, and it, it's just nice to begin seeing some validation and, and treatment options um, for them. So we, we talk about other ways in which co-occurring disorders can be defined. And one is having the disease of addiction, having um, the disorder of codependency, and having a medical condition. That can complicate the treatment. We see this really clearly in someone who has addiction. It's not uncommon, unfortunately, in the early stages of recovery after we've done some of the blood work to find out that some of our patients may have HIV or hepatitis. And now, in the midst of dealing with one potentially life-threatening disorder, they have to start dealing with another one, and in some ways a direct effect or consequence of their disease of addiction. In managing hepatitis, for example, Sometimes the treatment is the patient has to give themselves an injection or have somebody give them an injection every day in order to cure, and it actually can be a cure for hepatitis C. But if this person is an IV drug user, which many, 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 many times they are, hence they have hepatitis C, they now just managing their medical condition, their diabetes. These kinds of um, medical conditions now constantly remind them of the ritual of injecting themselves, drawing up the, um, the substance, the heroin, tying off the vein, injecting the substance, all that kind of thing is now reinforced because they have to do the ritual of drawing up the insulin, cleaning off the area, injecting <laughs> themselves with the insulin and or with the interferon to treat their hepatitis. So we see this complication there. I think an interesting one that we see, again, in folks who have that we can call a co-occurring disorder in folks who have the disease of addiction, and that's to have a behavioral addiction, um, to have an addiction to gambling or shopping, pornography, um, these kinds of behavioral addictions that are intertwined and yet have to be treated as well. We can't just say, oh, well, we'll fix your alcoholism and then you won't need to gamble anymore. I wish that would work, but mm -hmm. that's not how it works. You made an interesting point, though, about codependency in terms of undiagnosed addictions. Um, 
well, I think that my brain is now going towards the the reality that they also may have their own addictions going on. Right. Um, that that real often they might be um, using Valium in order to cope with the stress of living with addiction, or they might be having their afternoon wine as as a means of coping with it, and they haven't gotten out of control yet um, because right now the focus of codependency and, and keeping so focused on that other person is really um, kind of keeping the other in check. Um, but it's it's often there, and it's often what we would see in the past would be that six months or eight months down the road, they would be knocking on the door needing treatment for themselves. And, and we're not necessarily seeing them at a point of coming to terms with that faster, but we are beginning to, to open up the dialogue a little bit more. And that's often one of the ways in which someone with the disease of addiction tries to divert in, in a family session or a treatment setting, saying, well, but you smoke pot every night, Dad. So um, in diverting the attention to the father's potential addiction, the son is getting off the hot seat, but maybe also identifying a co-occurring disorder in father who may have the disease or the disorder of codependency. So there are many ways we can define it. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about where in the brain we find these things and how this is all interrelated. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www. 
www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center with me today. And we're talking about how mood disorders or other co-occurring disorders can occur both in the patient who has the disease of addiction and their loved one who is suffering from codependency. So, David, we've outlined many ways in which these can be diagnosed, and part of the difficulty is in separating what is a normal reaction to going through a stressful situation, what is a normal reaction for the person with addiction, going through withdrawal or intoxication, and how that can affect their mood. And then what might be a more serious disorder that may require... Uh, to have additional treatment in, in terms of we need to stabilize your mood disorder and not just assume that it is related to your codependency or to your disease of addiction. So that's part of what we have to tease out both at the Atlanta Healing Center and at the Atlanta Wellness Center. When is this a difficult but normal reaction and expected reaction, and when is this something that might require um, more formal intervention like antidepressant medication, neurofeedback, hormonal treatments, those kinds of things. And, and it's not as easy as it sounds, but that's one of the things that we have to do. So we also promised that we would talk a little bit about the neurobiology, and I think that this is really turning out to be, at least for me, (laughs) may not be for anybody else listening, but for me, this is really a fascinating look at how these disorders um, are, are expressed in a person and how the dance when either and or both are untreated, continues to go on and on and on. So classically, we've talked about our primitive brain, our survival brain, our deep, deep structures of our brain, and we talk about some important structures there. The amygdala, which is about the size and really the shape of an almond. You have one on each side, and it's our burglar alarm system. It's constantly monitoring our surroundings and determining are we safe. It can't wait, really looks forward to the opportunity to send out a burst of adrenaline, saying, all hands on deck, we are under siege, come on, let's go, let's respond, this is fight or flight. So the amygdala is very much a part of what we see in not the beginning of the disease of addiction, because it's not about fear, (laughs) it's not about pain and dread, it's about pleasure. But the amygdala is a big deal in the um, when the switch gets flipped between... I'm using drugs because they make me high and make me feel good, To I'm using drugs to keep from feeling bad. Many times we will see a person continuing to use drugs to quiet the amygdala. Now, the amygdala, as you can imagine, is a big deal in folks with codependency. Oh, the, the, most of what we're doing in <laughs> codependency work is helping people learn how to breathe and calm down and and 
switch back into the portion of the brain that helps them to think and know that they're safe and make healthy, wise decisions from their wise brain. But helping family members in particular recognize that they've been living in a constant state of stress and their amygdala, amygdala is, is working in high gear. Um, you can easily get them to see the, how it's working with their with the patients because that's what they're accustomed to anyway. Right. <laughs> so they, they can see when their amygdala is going off in their family member, and they, they can really jump right in there to rescue or to save or, or to protect their family member. Um, um, but they don't really necessarily recognize that the same process is happening in themselves. Real often I'll talk to patients about or to family members about the experience they have when – they know that their loved one's supposed to get home at 5 o'clock. And at about 4.30, they start noticing the clock, and they start looking at the front door, and they start checking um, to just be oriented to time, I guess. Um, but at 5.05, when their loved one is still not home, their amygdala is in full gear. It's no longer just kind of glancing. It's actually going and picking up the phone and dialing. It's sending out text messages. It's going and checking and doing all these things to get back to a place of, I'm safe, I can breathe again, because they don't breathe while this is going on, while, there's, uh, while their alarm system is, is running the show. And at that point... If we think about our brain as being on a, a seesaw or a teeter-totter, now most of us want to live our awake life in, uh, in the front of our brain, right um, above our eyes, behind our forehead. That's our prefrontal cortex. That's our conscious brain that makes decisions, that weigh and balances consequences, that does our day job, that keeps us focused on reasonable and rational. Our amygdala is in our primitive brain, and it is hardwired to trump everything because it's really important. If a tiger runs in this room right now, I don't want to sit there and say, now, is is that a Bengal tiger or a Siberian tiger, and who runs faster? No, I want to get out of my prefrontal cortex, my reasonable, rational front part of my brain. I want my amygdala to kick in, and I want to be safe. I want to run and hide or stay and fight, do whatever I need to do. And it's it's wired. Whether we're sleeping, whether we're relaxing, whether we're chill, whether we're working, if we're in danger, we want our teeter-totter to flip. We want our prefrontal cortex to go offline, and we want all of our energy and focus to be in that burglar alarm system so that we can react and be safe. When folks with codependency start to see the clock getting close to five o'clock they're no longer in their prefrontal cortex they're no longer in reason and logic and it's five minutes to five and the time isn't come and they'll call if there's a problem and i need to finish this report or i need to finish cooking dinner or whatever I need to finish doing, they can't stay in that prefrontal cortex. Their seesaw flips and it goes to the primitive part of our, their brain and no longer can they have reasonable, rational discussions with themselves about why their loved one might be late. They are in sheer panic and they sit in that sheer panic. And then when their loved one comes in the door, the sheer panic moves into anger because it's much easier to be angry than afraid. Mm -hmm. And so anger is the flip side of fear. So the minute they see their loved one, then they want to 
attack. Attack. And they do attack. And the loved one is just coming in from blah, 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 blah. And suddenly here is attack mode for which they are not prepared. It's And you see then the spiral in the relationship, the accusations, the fights. the. But, and, and patients will come to, to group and they'll talk about my loved one is crazy, my wife is crazy, I can't understand why she keeps doing it, or my husband, blah, blah, blah. They keep talking about these insane actions um, that their family members are doing. I just got home and suddenly I was berated with 30 questions related to why I was two minutes late. And and what they're describing is a real picture. Yes. Part of it, what we have to validate for them is, yes, your family member right now is living in that, that constant state of, state of panic that something bad's going to happen, that you're going to relapse and you're going to um, have a major, major disaster. Um, and it's going to take time for their brain to stop overreacting to this situation as you stay clean and you stay, you continue to do mm-hmm. what you say you're going to do. So trying to get everybody's brain <laughs> back to the prefrontal cortex is a job because when the person with addiction has been actively using drugs or alcohol, or any of us for that matter, doesn't matter whether you have addiction or not. If you become intoxicated with a substance, your prefrontal cortex goes offline. It is no longer thinking in a reasonable, rational way. It is no longer making good choices. It is no longer completing your tasks at hand. So the person with addiction is spending most of their time with the teeter-totter tipped so that they're in the survival mode. A lot of their symptoms of withdrawal, their irritability, their insomnia are the adrenaline and other neurotransmitters being released as they're going through withdrawal. So they're living in this primitive brain. Their loved ones are reacting and keep going offline, not necessarily because of substances, but because of their own fear and codependency. Their codependency keeps them in the amygdala, burglar alarm system part of their brain. And both of them are living in these highly reactive, very uncomfortable parts of the brain. And and to be able to talk to them and say to them that the chemicals that are being released that you're experiencing – Adrenaline, um, epinephrine, cortisol. Um, cortisol. These are not comfortable, relax, and feel good feeling right. chemicals. Addicts are getting dopamine, you know, and dopamine, they can chill out and relax and just feel happy and blissful, but family members aren't getting that. No. They're getting high alert um, wires going crossed and sending, sending um, alerts to every organ of the body. And that is a very uncomfortable place. The person with addiction knows that uncomfortable place. We call that withdrawal. Yeah. We call that withdrawal and craving states. So when their burglar alarm system is going off, it's because, oh, drugs, alcohol, behavior, no longer on board. We got to get those because we feel terrible. They're each feeling the same chemical, that Panic that amygdala, the burglar alarm system going off. It's for different reasons, but it is very uncomfortable. And if we can help both the family member and the person with addiction recognize that they are feeling those same feelings, 
and to have some empathy for each other. And we're going to talk about where we get the empathy and and all of that um, in in our next segment. But if they can understand that and have some appreciation for each other in terms of that uncomfortable place that nobody wants to be, we have done a lot to heal the relationship. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about empathy and our mirror neurons. Please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. David Donaldson and I are talking about addiction codependency and co-occurring disorders, focusing more on mood disorders and change in mood states that happen when someone's either active in their disease of addiction or active in codependency. So right before the um, 
break, we were talking about this teeter-totter or seesaw effect that is really modulated by something called the cingulate gyrus. This is our gear shifter in our brain. And this is when we have good control of our brain, we are able to move through our different feeling states and levels of consciousness at our choice. And that's one of the things that we can find some help with in, uh, in managing this teeter-totter. What's um, been so interesting is that up until recently, the focus has always been about learning how to kind of stay out of that um, the uh, amygdala brain. Um, and if you are into it, learning how to come back out of it without, you know, destroying the world. Right. So <laughs> helping people learn the, the, the basics of picking up the phone and calling your sponsor, of going to a meeting and just sitting and listening and sharing about how you're feeling or listening to how other people feel, allowing yourself to get into an empathetic brain where you're con- connecting and relating to others um, rather than in that reactionary, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe? And it's been a, a process of learning to be able to process and talk things through and breathe and pray and all of these things that are great and we're not diminishing any of those and we still have to do all of those but it's nice to have some other things that we can put into the toolbox now with with the things that you're doing so um that the use of uh, neurofeedback to decrease areas of the brain that are overworking or underworking, very helpful to reduce symptoms. But I think one of the, the real um, uh, gifts of neurofeedback is the gear shifter, people being able to say, okay, I need to concentrate right now and focus. I need to chill right now and calm down. I need to relax and go to sleep. <laughs> and being able to say, I need to do that, and then actually being able to do it. Right. Because traditionally what we see is, I need to do this, I know I need to do this, I know I need to do this, and that becomes the next obsession. Um, and beating themselves up for not doing what they know they need to do becomes the next obsession. Um, and, and now we're finding that through the use of neurofeedback, they're gaining the ability to actually say, I need to do something and do it. And their brain knows how to do it. So through imaging studies and looking at functional MRI, spec scans, um, and PET scans, and looking through QEEG, looking at the brain maps, we are now becoming increasingly aware of another important relay system that is called the insula. If you think about the earmuff part of your brain, the brain on either side of your head where your earmuffs would be, that's our limbic system. This is our emotional uh, part of our brain. This is our memory. This is our uh, appreciation for aesthetics and beauty and music and art, language, Science, all of these things are contained in our limbic system. And the insula, we didn't really know what it was. It's a deep structure in the brain. But more recently, we're finding out that, first of all, that's the source of many seizures. Many seizures will start in the insula and then spread quickly over the whole brain. And um, so we know that from this activity, that this is a very important relay system. Lots of information passes through there very quickly to many different regions of the brain. The insula, (coughs) 
<clears throat> excuse me, is also the part of our brain where we experience love and emotion, empathy, where we have gratitude, also resentments and anger and frustration, embarrassment. The, all of these emotions are regulated by our insula. So if we think of a teeter-totter going back and forth in our earmuff parts of our brain, where when we are feeling good and happy and stable in our mood, we are able to have empathy, concern for others. We're able to love others. We're able to feel joy and to be happy. If our insula is now tipping inward and our teeter-totter is going more towards our amygdala, this is where we're going to begin to experience feelings of anger, resentments, frustration, rage. Um, and if we tilt our insula too much to the other way, then we're going to see people become manic, where their mood is way too high and they are really overly enthusiastic and overly grandiose. So the insula helps us manage our mood, helps us take care of ourselves, knows when we're hungry, knows when we need to sleep. And this important relay system plays a big role in modulating our mood. I think that for patients it's been very helpful to have that visual, to have basically um, a teeter-totter inside each ear. And if you're if the teeter totters are forming a V, then they're depressed and they're lost and they don't think they're ever going to feel happiness again. And why is life so horrible? And if it's in a in a TP shape, life is incredibly beautiful. And I don't need to come to treatment because why would I want to talk about any of that stuff? The pink cloud. The pink cloud, <laughs> and and also quite delusional. <laughs> um, and and helping them recognize that we're not trying to take away all of the peaks and valleys that that wouldn't be life, but we're trying to get get to a place of more um, more um, stable level <laughs> balance. Um, um, it's it helps to be able to really have that visual so they see that that um, it's possible. Yes, and that's one of the things when we see the relationship between the person with addiction and the person with codependency, that those um, earmuff parts of their brain, the teeter-totters in their ears, so to speak, they mirror each other. We literally have neurons back in our prefrontal cortex, that part right behind our eyes, and our forehead called mirroring neurons. These are the neurons in which we learn to respond to others. So if you see a smiling baby, it is pretty hard not to smile back. As you interact with the baby and pull the same face and make the same sounds, the mirroring neurons help the baby begin to appreciate other people. And through these mirroring neurons, we communicate uh, to our loved ones and to important people in our lives. If our mirroring neurons are constantly in our V-shape, where it's panic and anxiety and aggression and anger, resentments, we tend to mirror what we are seeing. If someone's mean to us, we tend to be mean back. If someone's rude, we tend to be rude back. And when we get the relationships at home with family members where someone is in early recovery and they tend to feel more hopeless and full of shame and guilt, that is a 
uncomfortable and yet expected state in early recovery. They're in the V shape and their loved ones are going to mirror the V shape. And so they're going to meet that shame and guilt and anger with anger and frustration and resentment. And it becomes very difficult to have that teeter-totter balanced so that we've got a straight line across the ears. Instead of a V or a teepee, we've got a, a, a straight line. We, we're pretty stable. We have a little up. We have a little down. But we can't get there very easily unless the people around us are reflecting our, the same symbol in our head, so to speak. And, and for a patient to think that they're going to be able to get that just by talking to us and talking to their family isn't sufficient because when they talk to us, they're, they're getting a chance to do some work, but when they get home, they're meeting that same mirror. So real often I, I will talk to patients if they're in a stressful situation to pick up the phone and call somebody else first. Call your sponsor, call somebody you've gotten to know in, in your recovery process and talk it out there first so that you're not in that reactionary state before you talk to your family member. But then I also have to do that same work with the families and say, hey, I'm, they're being told to talk to somebody else first, not out of disloyalty, not out of threatening the relationship, mm-hmm. but out of um, knowing the, that the addictive cycle is at work here and we've got to change that pattern. And and you guys learning to call someone else first is also a really helpful process. Because we do want to have the brain stabilized. And we do want to have, in stabilizing the brain, we will be able to stabilize the relationship. In stabilizing the brain, we'll be able to stabilize addiction. We'll be able to stabilize codependency. And too often, we've gotten into these cycles where these patterns of behavior and interaction become hardwired. And it's like solid steel cables that are creating these positions in our brains. This is, again, where talk therapy, having someone mirror back to them reason and logic and consistency and helping them pull out of the V, um, sometimes pull out of the teepee, too, because they get a little too pink cloudish and unrealistic, but the work in therapy or in 12-step groups is to keep people much more stable. And the work with neurofeedback is to help everybody have more of ability to modulate those kinds of seesaws that can get out of whack in our brain when we have codependency or the disease of addiction. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.